Thank you for tuning in to ReachMD XM157 as we present this month's special series, Focus on Children's Health. Orson Welles bespoke that we will sell no wine before its time, and yet 400,000 babies are being born well before their time. What's missing from the aging process? Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Children's Health, on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Anna Penn. Dr. Penn is an assistant professor of pediatrics, neonatologist, and supervising principal investigator in the Division of Neonatal and Developmental Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine, Stanford, California. Dr. Penn's current research focuses on the brain development of premature infants. Hi, Dr. Penn, and thanks so much for joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Glad to be here. So when is it safe to be born? Well, it's best to be born at term. We divide prematurity up into different risk zones. So certainly being born later than 32 weeks gestation, which is about eight weeks early, is significantly better than being born below that age in terms of the complications you're likely to experience. And being born below 25 weeks gestation clearly has a significant increase in morbidity and mortality. Now, that said, every baby is an individual, and these are sort of big statistical statements. What age group are you focusing your research on? I'm most interested in the babies who are born below 32 weeks gestation, particularly those that are born below 25 weeks gestation, because those are the ones that tend to have the worst neurologic outcomes. And what specific outcomes are you looking at, and which areas of the brain are you focusing on? So I'm very interested in how connections form in the brain. In terms of the outcomes that I'm most interested in are the neurologic deficits that we're seeing in more and more of our school-age children who were born extremely premature. It's worth saying that our ability to save preterm infants has changed significantly even since I started my training. And we can now rescue more and more preterm infants. Unfortunately, what's come with that is a recognition that many of these infants who then grow up to be school-age children have significant cognitive disabilities and disadvantages compared to their peers that were born full term. Now, you've noticed there's some gender differences. One of the very striking things that comes out of almost all epidemiologic studies on preterm infants is that being male is a significant risk factor for having a worse outcome. So the males have worse lung disease. They have worse neurologic outcomes. They, for reasons that are not understood at all, have a higher rate of sepsis, and they overall have a higher mortality rate. There are some other interesting differences that are also not understood. There are ethnic differences, and whether those are environmental, genetic, hormonal, nobody knows. I was going to ask you, the effects that you're looking at, how many do you think are due to the fact that it's premature separation from the mother or the deficit caused more by the things we do or don't do for the premature baby once they're born? I think the answer is we don't really know at this point. Clearly, there are lots of things we do that potentially damaging to developing infant who's preterm, for example, putting them on a ventilator. On the other hand, without giving them some ventilatory support, they don't survive. So it's a mixed blessing. So what we need to do is, of course, minimize any damage that we cause, 
as well as give them whatever it is that they need that they would have gotten from their mother. So I think it's both sides of the coin. Going back to the gender differences, have you seen any structural differences? I mean, functional, do you doing functional imaging, PET scans, spec scans? I myself don't do any functional imaging, but there are some very active groups looking at babies that have survived extreme prematurity and looking at the differences in brain development. Overall, babies who have more motor deficits will have damaged their white matter tracts. That's a well-recognized phenomenon. But is that more so in the males? Yes, it is, actually. Male infants certainly seem to have more damage than female infants, both in the white and gray matter regions, particularly in areas that I'm interested in. For example, the hippocampus and the cerebellum, which are both sites of different types of learning. And what are you finding? So what's been found in the studies of of human infants is that the damage to the male hippocampus at least looks like it is significantly greater than that in female infants. Now, of course, you know, this is in a handful of infants who have actually been studied at this point by MRI. And there's been very little functional imaging at this point, PET scanning or fMRI, but more of that is starting to be done, some of it here at Stanford. I understand you're looking at some of the steroid hormones, estrogens, progesterones. Any preliminary data there that's leading to any conclusions as to why we're seeing these differences between males and females? So in terms of the human side of things, we've just started our clinical studies. So we are very interested in knowing what the steroid hormone levels are in male and female infants when they're born preterm. There's a little bit of very old data on various steroid levels, mainly from the 1970s. And it's clear that human infants, just like monkeys and even rodents, have a little surge of sex steroids right after they're born, and that this happens in preterm babies as well as in term babies. But the levels have not been measured accurately using modern techniques, and we now have a method for measuring what those steroid levels are, measuring multiple steroid levels in a very small volume, so less than a little drop of blood or CSF, and we want to look at our tiniest infants and actually track what those levels do and correlate them with neurologic outcome. Not at this point in terms of structural imaging, although that would be great later on down the line, but in terms of neurodevelopmental outcome. So all of our babies who are less than 1,500 grams get neurologic follow-up in a developmental clinic, and that's very important for any preterm baby, which is that they, they be carefully tracked and that interventions be offered if they're having any neurologic developmental issues. I'd like to welcome those who are just joining us at this special segment on children's health on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. Anna Penn, neonatologist at the Lucille Packard Children's Hospital in Stanford, California, and we're discussing Dr. Penn's work on the developing brain of premature infants. I'm a practicing pediatrician, so I know how important the neonatal follow-up is. What about interventions? Are there things that you begin to see from early phases of your work, either on the animal model or on the human side, where specific interventions that we hadn't thought about might be a good idea or you're starting to use? We haven't started to use any hormonal therapies in terms of the steroid hormones that we're talking about. So those would be the sex steroids, uh, estrogen, testosterone, or progesterone. But 
there is a group in Germany that about 12 years ago started a small-scale study looking to see if in female infants given estrogen and progesterone, if they could improve outcome. They mainly did it for bone density because one of the things you likely know is that our preterm infants have trouble accruing enough bone mass and are very prone to fracture. So they wanted to see whether they could improve that by giving them basically physiological levels of estrogen and progesterone. There are a couple of problems with that study. One, it was extremely small. And two, it was confounded by the fact that during that period of time, neonatologists were still using high-dose glucocorticoids, so dexamethasone, to treat inflammation in preterm babies. And we've since found that causes brain damage in and of itself, not necessarily you know, in, the, in small doses, but in large, prolonged doses. And so we've stopped doing that. Now, those are the doses trying to prevent bronchial pulmonary dysplasia? Yeah, so the, the 30 days of dexamethasone. So the other problem with that very small study is that what was happening is that only female infants were being treated. And in terms of the risk, the risk is clearly higher to male infants, and they are likely to be the ones that have more of a deficit. So it's not yet being used therapeutically. I think there's more that we have to know. So let me give you some examples. So the reason I think it is in part something that has to do with the hormonal exposure of the infants is there was just a very nice study published in pediatrics looking at the outcome for sex-discordant twins, so a boy and a girl. And if you look at a boy and a girl twin pair in terms of preterm babies, What happens is not that the boys become more like the girls. The girls become more like the boys in terms of outcomes. And the same thing is true in mice. That's been known for a while, that at least in terms of the parts of the brain that determine sexual behavior, because mice have many, many pups, if you're a girl between two boy pups or a boy between two girl pups, it will influence your ultimate behavior if you're a mouse. And so it's interesting to see that the, the parallel persists into the human situation, and it looks like it may not just be genetics or the maternal environment, but the hormonal environment that's caused by the two different genders. So we're very interested in taking mice now and trying to sort out which hormones are beneficial and which are harmful. With the difference between male susceptibility to all the various things you mentioned earlier, is there anything that's been found in the genome Yes, it's clear that there are differences very, very early, even in the brain, in terms of gene expression, mainly with sex-linked genes, so genes that are carried on the X or Y chromosome. There are a handful of those, and we've actually done some studies in mice mapping out the gene expression in different regions of the brain over embryonic time and then into the postnatal period. And we do see those changes in gene expression. In the postnatal study that was done on the different sex twins that was published in pediatrics that you alluded to, did they do any genetic studies? No, it was a purely observational study from the neonatal network. In terms of the genetic differences, you know, that may play a small role, and we are interested in exploring that more. But I think even more so are the differences in hormone levels. So it's very clear that even in utero, male and female embryos differ. They grow different at slightly different rates. They, as is well known, have a slightly different rate of survival. And so the output of the gonads comes into play 
really quite early in gestation. So by about nine weeks gestation in a human and in mice, certainly after the first week of gestation. So what we're really interested in doing is trying to model preterm brain injury and then test what exposure to these different hormones will do. I'd like to thank Dr. Anna Penn, who's been my guest, and we've been discussing factors affecting brain development in premature infants. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and you've been listening to a special segment on children's health on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at ReachMD.com. Register with promo code RADIO and receive six months of free streaming audio. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions, call us at 888-MD-XM-157. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I wish you good day and good health. Listen all month as ReachMD-XM-157 presents a special series focused on children's health. To download podcasts of this series, visit us at ReachMD.com.